Well, good morning. Wonderful to have joined all your voices together this morning and lifting up worship to our great God and Savior through song. Now I invite you to turn to Genesis um, chapter 5 as we continue to worship Him um, through the reading of His words to us. The ancient words that are changing me and changing you through His Holy Spirit. Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahahalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahahalel 840 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahahalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahahalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahahalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. These are the words of God. You may be seated. Now, beloved, I ask you to join your hearts to mine as we lift up this prayer to God together. Let's go to him. Holy Father, who sits enthroned in heaven, surrounded by the ceaseless praises of cherubim and seraphim, 
and all the saints who have gone on before us, we worship you this morning. We thank you, O God, for the great things that you have done for us, for what you have accomplished for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for who you are, O God, transcendent, magnificent, beyond our comprehension. And yet we thank you that you are not unknowable to us, that you are not a God who is far off, but that you have reached down to us, that we through our Lord Jesus are able to have a relationship, a real relationship with you. Father, we thank you for your word, that you reveal yourself to us in the scripture. We thank you for the gift, the privilege of being able to read it this morning in our own English language. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would continue the work that you have begun in each one of us. We pray that you would continue the work that you have begun in our congregation, our corporate body, and indeed through the whole world, that through your word, by your Holy Spirit, that you would sanctify us, as our Lord Jesus prayed in John 17. For we know that your word is truth, Father. We also pray this morning, O God, for our brothers and sisters at Arbor Church, our sister congregation in Dayton, Ohio. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless their worship gathering this morning. We also pray that as they have expressed the need and the desire for another vocational elder to serve alongside Pastor Steve Woodman, O God, that you would see fit to do that amongst them that you would give the church both the, the means of being able to support another um, staff pastor, and Lord, that you would equip, call, raise up a man who would have that desire, and that you would give their congregation that good gift. And Lord, that you would also bless them as we rejoice with them that they have about 60 students from Cedarville University who are frequenting there and attending, Lord, that you would help them to love them, to bless them, to disciple them. And Lord, that you would just pour out your Holy Spirit on all those young people. Lord, we also think about all of the events that are going on in the world right now. Father, things that can be burdensome, that are easy for our minds even to get distracted by. We do think about Hurricane Ian, Holy Father. We pray for the people down in Florida and the other areas of the South that have been affected by this massive storm. Oh God, we pray that you would have mercy on them. Lord, for those who have lost loved ones, we pray that you would comfort their grieving hearts. Lord, for those whose lives seemingly have been destroyed by this storm, houses and businesses, towns that have been wrecked and devastated by it. Lord, we pray that you would please help them. Lord, that this would also be a time when your people would be seen being salt and light, helping those who have been affected by this hurricane, and that your people would be faithful to share the gospel while they also minister to the physical needs of those in Florida and elsewhere. Lord, we pray that you would protect those and help them, construction crews and line workers and such as they go down to help rebuild. 
Lord, we also pray um, for our president, for Joe Biden. Oh God, who you have raised up um, to be um, the leader of our country. Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon him. Lord, we pray that you would convert our president, that by your Holy Spirit you would grant him faith and repentance, that he would look to Christ, the King of kings, as his Lord. Oh God, we pray that you would give our president wisdom and that you would help him to govern in a way that is for the flourishing of the church, that he would govern justly, and righteously, such that we could live quiet and peaceful lives that are godly and dignified in every way. Coming a little closer to home, Father, here in our own church, we rejoice that you continue to um, grant fruitful wounds in our congregation. We pray for the pregnant mothers in our midst. We ask that you would help um, Kirsten and Joel as they have children that you are forming in their wombs right now, O oh Lord, that you would bless them, sustain them, keep them during these pregnancies. Father, we lift up Leah as um, the date for her cesarean section gets closer. Father, we are excited and grateful. We rejoice with her and Jared. We pray, O oh God, that you would help her, um, that you would sustain her through this, that you would be gracious to her, that you would help the, the surgery, the procedure to go well, and that they would be able to welcome this precious um, baby girl um, into the world um, very soon with no complications. And so we, we lift her and all the mothers up to you. We pray for our brother Ron Cox, Father, that you would give him continual healing and renewal in the aftermath of his melanoma removal that you would give him relief from any pain he's experiencing. Father, for our sister Janice, as she is continuing to grieve her sister's death, Lord, that you would draw near to her, help her not to be overwhelmed by sorrow and loneliness, and that you would help us as a church, Father, to minister the love of Christ to her. And Lord, for our sister Kimberly, um, we pray that you would bind up her broken heart. Lord, that you would draw near to her, embrace her in your fatherly arms, that she would know your comfort, your grace, your kindness. Father, that you would work in all of her family, all her siblings. Lord, we give you thanksgiving that um, we are confident that right now her father is with you, that he is in the presence of Christ worshiping you, and we thank you for that. And, oh, Lord, we also pray that you would grant um, safe travels to Dr. Waldron and his wife as they travel down to us to help us celebrate our 11th anniversary service, that you would be gracious to them. And, Lord, we pray for your um, help for Pastor Scott and our brother Tim as they are continuing to labor, set their face towards planting a new church in Wilkes County. Um, Father, that's exciting, and um, it's difficult in many ways for all of us, but we pray that you would help each one of us to accomplish the work that you have given us to do, um, that you would help Pastor Scott, that you would help 
our brother Tim as they labor to labor well in a way that is pleasing to Christ and that you would allow this church to give birth to another church um, in the coming months down the mountain. And we commit that work to you, O oh God. Finally, Father, we pray that you would be pleased to continue to receive our worship this morning. We know that the Lord Jesus promises to be among us by his spirit when we gather in his name. And that is what we have done this morning. Holy Father, we pray that in this time of the ministry of the word would be pleasing to you and that you would accomplish your purposes in this congregation for the glory of your great name. And we ask all this in the name of our advocate, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, he's a chip off the old block. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Like father, like son. Okay, I'll stop. You get the point. Children often are similar to their parents. Sons and daughters pick up on the traits, habits, quirks of their moms and dads. As we get older, many of us find ourselves becoming more and more like our moms and dads. Kids also physically resemble their moms and dads. You probably heard, all she has her father's eyes, right? Or, or he has his mother's hair, something like that. Kids get a lot from their parents. And there's a relationship, isn't there, that exists between parent and and child, whether that's biological parent or adoptive parent and child. And good parents also pass on wisdom and the Lord's instructions to their children who will grow up, Lord willing, and get married and often have their own kids who will be chips off the old block, who will get married and have kids who will continue to be fruitful and multiply. Moses recorded that command, be fruitful, multiply, to our first parents earlier in the book of Genesis. In fact, Moses has recorded a lot of stuff already in just the first four chapters of Genesis. Pastor Kaysen has ably led us through the creation of all things. He has led us through the fall of man the murder of righteous Abel, and the proliferation of Cain's family line. And as we continue walking through the book of Genesis this morning, I would like for us to look at this text together with two simple points. Our first one being Adam's end, and our second being Seth's new beginning. Let's begin with our first point this morning, we'll be looking at verse 1. And now I'm sure that you are aware that our chapter and verse divisions in the Bible are not original to the text. The chapter and verse divisions were added later. So in other words, Moses did not designate what we are reading today as chapter 5. But, as we look at chapter 5... Don't we notice that Moses is designating it something different from what he has previously been recording? 
He starts the passage with a new heading. Look at verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Pastor Kaysen showed us that this book, Genesis, is divided into several different toledot sections, each one moving the history and the redemptive story along. Each new section marks a moving forward, but it also marks a shifting of focus, or maybe you would even want to say a narrowing of focus. Um, The previous section of Genesis, which began at chapter 2, verse 4, was entitled, The Generations of the Heavens and the Earth When They Were Created. It encompassed man's creation, man's fall, the lives of Cain, and all of Cain's descendants, at least those first few generations. But now in this section, this Toledot, Moses is shifting away, isn't he, from Cain's family to Seth's family. But it's interesting that rather than pick up with Seth, Moses actually does a little bit of a recap, kind of a previously in Genesis kind of a thing. And he discusses the creation of mankind again, really for the third time. He says, picking back up in the middle of verse 1, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, verse 2, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. The text affirms once again, as it did back in chapter 1, verse 26, that man is made in God's likeness. Now hold on to that. We'll be be coming back to that. Male and female, we are told, he made them. Brothers and sisters, there's much that could be said about this alone, but we know that men and women, by God's design, need each other. And they are distinct from one another. They have different roles. They have different characteristics. And yet, the text is clear, both are equal in value and dignity in the sight of God. They both share equally everything that it means to be human in body and soul. Furthermore, God said they were very good. God blessed them. God made man to reflect his glory in a way no other creature can. Man was unique. Man was a creature that God made a covenant with. He gave dominion to man over the rest of the created order, and he gave man everything he needed to fulfill that created purpose. It's also important for us to remember that God named them man. Now, God gave Adam the responsibility of naming all the other creatures, but God personally named man. That's fitting, isn't it? Given man's special role in creation. One pastor has said that God um, declared his own dominion over all of creation by naming man himself. 
so we can understand that by God naming mankind, by giving our race our name, he was both granting a special privilege to humanity and also reminding humanity that even as we exercise dominion over the earth, we are still subject to our creator. After all, fathers name their sons, right? That's where I'm going with this. What I find absolutely fascinating about this text are the parallels which Moses draws between God making Adam and Adam begetting his son. Look at verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, beloved, notice the similarities between these verses. Verse 1 describes man being made in the likeness of God, while Seth is described as being in the likeness of Adam. God named Adam, just as Adam, in verse 3, names his son Seth. There's even the language of Seth being in Adam's image. Just as in Genesis 1.26, Adam is said to be made in God's image. There is, of course, a big difference as well. Man is described as created and made by God, while Seth is fathered by Adam. However, the similarities between these verses are still striking, and I don't want them to pass by us unnoticed. I believe that one of the inescapable conclusions to be drawn from this passage and from this language that Moses is intentionally using is that Adam had something like the relationship of a son to God. Now, this is taught elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in the Gospel according to Luke, when the evangelist is recording the um, genealogy of Jesus, listen to how he does so near the end of it. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Did you hear that? Adam is called God's son. Now, why is that? Well, not because his sonship was like the sonship of our Lord Jesus. No, Christ is unique in that Christ is the second person of the Holy Trinity incarnate. True God of true God, as we say in the creed. Uh, of one substance with the Father, eternally begotten by the Father. Adam, simply put, was none of those things. He was only a creature. Yet, even still, Adam was created in the image of God. And he was also a type of Christ. Christ came to accomplish all that Adam failed to accomplish. Reflecting on this in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes that the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But even apart from that glorious typology, there are other reasons that Luke in his gospel 
And Moses here in Genesis 5 would use the language of sonship in regards to Adam. Man was created by a special, more personal act than all the animals were, right? We think about that image of God forming man out of the dust of the earth. God also made a covenant with Adam such that Adam could advance to eternal life and immutable perfection. Adam had a relationship with his creator. Adam knew God. Adam walked with God. And as was previously said, mankind was made in God's image. He was called to be like God as he acted as God's representative in the world. The reasonable souls of man were endued with immortality. The souls of man were given reason, the capacity for wisdom, love, and justice. John Calvin says that it is a nobility far more exalted that man should bear a resemblance to his creator as a son does to his father. It was not indeed possible for God to act more liberally towards man than by impressing his own glory upon him, thus making him, as it were, a living image of the divine wisdom and justice. Man shared in a finite way God's communicable attributes. Now don't misunderstand, they weren't little gods, as some false teachers have said, but they were, as Sam Waldron, who's going to be in this pulpit in a week, has said, they were visual replicas of God. We are, after all, called to imitate God, right? Be holy, for I am holy, God says to his people. And even fallen humanity, brothers and sisters, even fallen men and women bear that image, though it is marred and tainted by sin. All men and women, boys and girls, fetuses, zygotes, newborns, all bear the image of God and all are worthy of the dignity that comes with bearing that image. So much so that in just a few chapters, God will prescribe capital punishment for murder after the flood. And all of that is why Paul can say at the Areopagus, quoting the Greek poet, that we are indeed God's offspring. Man is not the end result of blind, random, natural processes. Mankind is not a highly evolved ape. Man is not a blight upon the earth. In fact, according to the psalmist, God has given the earth to the children of man. Mankind is the pinnacle of the created order. Now listen, I love animals. I do. Especially my new cat, Tarkin. He's awesome. Some of you have met him. You're grateful, I'm sure, that I didn't bring pictures to show you. But people are not animals. And animals aren't people. Or in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Man is of more value than many sparrows. This illuminates our thinking as regards ethics. If you have to choose between saving the life of your pet or save the life of your enemy, you must choose to save the life of your enemy rather than your beloved pet because your enemy bears the image of God. What does Jesus say? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That dignity of the human person, church, should also affect the way we conduct ourselves in conversations with friends and family, maybe people we don't like, posts on social media. Oh, I know it feels really good to own the libs with facts and logic. But we can't allow that to make us hate other image bearers in our hearts. May it never be said of us what James 3.9 says, that with our tongues we bless our Lord and Father, and with our tongues we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Frustration with our opponents and rivals, maybe even righteous anger on our parts, must not cause us to hate them or refuse to share the gospel with them. They have dignity, brothers and sisters. They are made in God's image, and they desperately need Christ. We have the message that they need to hear. Our race is a fallen race. All are justly condemned for our first father's sin. And all are born unable and unwilling to please their creator. Verse 3 actually reminds us of this when it says that Seth was in Adam's likeness. Meaning that while the image of God was certainly passed on to Seth, so was original sin and corruption. Adam and Eve were conceiving children who bore imputed guilt and a natural tendency to wickedness and ungodliness. Again, Calvin notes this when he says that Seth, as well as all the rest, was defiled because Adam, who had fallen from his original state, could beget such none as were like himself. Calvin is saying basically that fallen sinners can only beget fallen sinners. Seth was, as the psalmist says, brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin. Jesus Christ, through his miraculous conception in the womb of the virgin, is the only exception to this. As for Seth, he was a chip off the old block. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. Like father, like son. He probably looked a lot like Adam physically. But in addition to that, he also received the same sinful nature which his father possessed. It was a corrupted image passed on to Seth. Such is the estate of all Adam's children. All sinned in Adam. And the scripture says that the wages of sin is death. And that somber reminder comes to us 
in the next two verses. Read with me. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. He died. Those words are kind of chilling, aren't they? They are the fulfillment of exactly what God had told Adam by this point nearly a millennium earlier. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, what? You shall surely die. Pastor Kaysen reminded us that God graciously allowed Adam to live a long life after he partook of the forbidden fruit. He provided for his earthly needs. He gave him many children, obviously. But eventually, God brought that judgment that he had foretold to pass upon Adam. Death wrapped its clutches around our first father. He who had been made from the dust returned to the dust. A sad and tragic ending for Adam, the man who was given and offered so much. However, even in the midst of death's shadow in the text, Gospel hope shines through, doesn't it? Through Adam's son, Seth, we are reminded that a deliverer was coming. A seed of the woman. One was coming to destroy the work of that serpent in the garden. And that brings us to our second point, Seth's new beginning. Now, only five chapters into Genesis, and we have seen our Lord Jesus everywhere, haven't we? On every page. He is the Logos, the Word, through whom God created in chapter 1. He is the aforementioned seed of the woman, coming to destroy the serpent and his work. But there's more. He is shadowed in the sacrifice of animal skins that were made to clothe Adam and Eve's nakedness. And we see him typified by righteous Abel, who suffered unjustly and whose blood cried out to God. All of these things point to Jesus. And indeed, as Jesus himself said, Moses wrote about him. The next way we will see Moses doing that, writing about Jesus, is by his tracing the family line through whom ultimately Jesus would come. But first for review, let's briefly address who Seth was. He was the child given to Adam and Eve after the murder of their holy son Abel. Think of Seth as as Abel's successor. He was the one graciously called by God to continue that line of faith that was begun by his deceased brother. 
I affirm that Seth, like Abel, was a believer. That Seth was saved because he trusted in the promise of Christ's coming. And it is to that family line that Moses is now shifting his attention. We shall see the stark contrast for the next few weeks from the line of Cain to the line of Seth. Because Cain's line is marked largely by wickedness, while Seth's line is marked largely by holiness and faith in God. Cain's family represents the seed of the serpent. Seth's family represents the seed of the woman. But wait, you might be thinking, I thought Jesus was the seed of the woman. Amen, he certainly is. He crushed the serpent's head on the cross. And he will consummate that death blow when he returns in glory. He is the climactic, the ultimate seed of the woman. However, the Bible also teaches that the people of God are the woman's seed. In Revelation 12, for example, the Apostle John sees a vision of a woman and a dragon. The dragon, he tells us, is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. This is one of those passages in Revelation where John actually interprets the symbolism for us. He is telling us this dragon in this vision that I'm writing to you is Satan, that serpent back in Genesis. The woman in the vision that John's having gives birth to a child, but not just any child, not just any baby. The apostle says that it is a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, I wonder who that could be. That's Psalm 2 language. That child in the vision, that, that seed of the woman, is clearly our Lord Jesus, who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Kiss the sun, O ye kings. In the same vision, the sun, Jesus, he ascends to heaven. Sounds familiar, right? But then, the vision doesn't stop there. The dragon attacks the woman's other children. Other children. Now, who might they be? Well, in keeping with the way he's been writing the vision, John tells us who they are. He writes, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And these are who they are. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us, brothers and sisters. Those whom God has granted life to. Those who, by grace, are the children of God. Born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God and His sovereign will. Church, are we not united to Christ? Are we not united to this seed of the woman? 
We are. We are his body, Paul tells us. We are loved and adopted by the Father in Christ. We are baptized into Christ. We live holy and sanctified lives of thanksgiving through the Spirit of Christ. Christ has crushed Satan. And our union with our triumphant Savior is such that Paul can tell the Roman believers that the God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. (laughs) How can he say that? He can say that because Jesus' enemies are our enemies. But by grace, his victory over them is our victory as well. Hallelujah! One man has said that Christ's righteousness by virtue of our union with him is our righteousness. His resurrection, by virtue of our union with Him, is our resurrection. But by the determination of God in His sovereign will, His plan, it was determined that Christ would have to come in the flesh to secure that salvation for us. And what we're seeing is God beginning to bring that about in time through the line of Seth. It was through the line of Seth that Christ would come in accordance or according to the flesh. They were, the line of Seth, they were the seed of the woman leading up to the seed of the woman, if you will. And in that line, this family, we see men who believed in the promise of Christ's coming, who received eternal life because of that faith. And we see it evidenced in the lives of holy men like Enoch, Lamech, and Noah. These men who we are going to study more over the next couple of weeks, who are in this line of faith, they showed their holy faith through their holy lives. But that shouldn't be a surprise to us, should it? This Seth's line is marked by righteousness. By this it is evident Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's 1 John 3.10. So by contrasting these two families, Moses is making it clear and evident to us whose children are God's and whose are Satan's. Yes, Satan has a seed too, beloved. He has a people. Remember back to chapter 4, which Pastor Kaysen was preaching through. Cain's family is the dark mirror image of Seth's family. They represent the seed of the serpent, the unrighteous ones who hate and rebel against God, Satan's children, which is why the Lord Jesus told the unbelieving Jews who were opposing him, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. The seed of the serpent are in bondage to the devil and to sin. They love sin and hate God. But such were all of us, beloved, before God saved us. We were by nature children of wrath, Ephesians tells us, until God lavished mercy upon us. 
granted us new hearts and calls us his sons and daughters. I spent a lot of time earlier explaining how all mankind are God's offspring and possess that dignity. Now, I'm not contradicting that now. All human persons bear the image of God their creator and are his offspring in that sense. However, it must be stated with equal clarity that there is also a vital sense in which all men are not the children of God. Only those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus are the adopted sons and daughters of God. They are the children of God. And this is why Genesis presents such a clear distinction between Cain's line and Seth's line. Speaking of the line of Seth, We've talked a lot about them, but now let's introduce ourselves to some of them, shall we? Let's keep reading the text, picking up in verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 9, when Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Verse 12, when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahahalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahahalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Verse 15, when Mahahalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahahalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahahalel were 895 years, and he died. Verse 18, when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. So we went down through really a short portion of genealogy there. We recognize already, I think, that it has a clear purpose. While acknowledging that each one of these men had multiple children, Moses only names one of them. He's tracing the line of ancestors leading to Noah. And from Noah would come Shem, who would eventually lead to Abraham, who would lead to David. Who would lead to Jesus, our Lord? I skipped a few generations in there. We don't know much about those men that I just read through, do we? Moses doesn't tell us almost anything about them except for a refrain common to all of them. And he died. And he died. And he died. 
even though they lived what to us are exorbitantly long lives, right? Eventually, all these men of old died. Death is what their father Adam had won for them, if you will. In Adam, the scripture says, all die. Now for unbelievers, that's a death of both body and soul. Listen to what the early church father Augustine, how he put it. For if the soul lives in eternal punishments, by which also those unclean spirits shall be tormented, that is rather eternal death than eternal life. For there is no greater or worse death than when death never dies. Now that's a very somber thing to ponder, isn't it? And I pray that that moves us with compassion and concern for the unbelieving loved ones that we have in our lives, brothers and sisters. However, we also know that even believers like Seth, who have the resurrection and eternal joy to look forward to in the next life, oh, that is such a glorious hope. But even we still die in this life. The Bible reflects in numerous places on the fleeting, frail nature of human life in this age. Psalm 90. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Psalm 103. As for man... His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. James 4, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Brothers and sisters, our life on this terrestrial ball are very fragile. The deaths of our forefathers in this passage surely are a reminder of that. Now, while we don't know that all of the men that I just read were believers, I believe there is good reason to affirm that they were believers. However, while these men went down to the grave at the end of their earthly pilgrimage. The God whom they served remained exactly as He was. He remained exactly as He is now. He remained exactly as He ever shall be. Lots of things change. God doesn't. He can't change. The very same author, Moses, And Psalm 90 gives this praise to God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. In all generations, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to the dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Psalm 102, Of old, 
You laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Empires rise and fall. Tides change. People pass away. But God remains through it all. Men are fickle. Men can attempt to thwart the purpose of the Almighty, but He just laughs. He is unchanged. He accomplishes all that He pleases. And in the midst of the faithlessness of man, God, brothers and sisters, remains faithful. This is the God who ensured that as the generations passed on, as the patriarchs came and went, that the promised Messiah would come into the world to save you. To save them. This is the same God, brothers and sisters, who adopted you as His children who sent His Son to purchase you. The same unchangeable God, the rock of Israel, who upholds you and governs every step of your life. And you can be assured that when you fall into death, this God will send His angels to catch you and bring you into His presence where you will enjoy eternal joy, everlasting peace. So how should we respond to such things, church? Well, as we prepare to enter a time of prayer and reflection, I have just a few applications that I'd like to share with you. Number one, salvation isn't genetic. This morning, we were introduced to the line of promise, the family tree, right? Chosen graciously by God through whom Christ would come. The line that also um, represents the salvific grace of God because we see the holy lives of many of these men in this family line. Now, all of that is true and wonderful and beautiful, but we err if we think that God's mercy is somehow contained in DNA that God saves all the believers or all the children of believers all the time. That isn't true, beloved. It's never been true. Even with the line leading down to Noah, God was free to save whom He chose to save. Jesus teaches us, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now while much can be drawn from that, and we don't have time to exhaust it, I want to focus on one thing in particular. And that's to the parents. Please do not assume 
that your kids are saved because you and your spouse are Christians. Don't be passive and just think that they're believers by default. Rather, preach the gospel to your kids. Teach them to pray. Teach them to read their Bibles. Oh Yes, play with them. Enjoy them. Kids are great. But don't be lulled to sleep. We don't become sinners as we get older. We are conceived as sinners. And the Bible calls all fallen people children of wrath. I love children. Some of my favorite people in the world are kids. Jesus himself showed tremendous affection for children in his earthly ministry. But they aren't innocent in God's sight, beloved. They are guilty in Adam. I urge you to call your children to faith and repentance. Point them to Jesus because Jesus is the refuge for every sinner, no matter what age they are, who turns to Him in faith. You pass along many things to your children by virtue of their descent from you, right? Through your genes. But faith and repentance are not among them. Preach the gospel to them and pray for them. Does God often save the children of believers? Yes, He does. And we praise Him for that kindness. But we can't assume it, and we certainly can't demand it. Pray for your children, brothers and sisters. Your pastors join you in praying for them. We love them. We want them to come to Christ. But that's the point, isn't it? That they need Christ. And they need the gospel just like all of us do. So preach it to them. And children, those of you who are in here right now and listening to me, you must hear the gospel proclamation and turn to the Lord Jesus. Look to what He accomplished on the cross as the punishment for the sins that we all deserved. Look to His resurrection and that He is standing at the right hand of the Father right now and know that if you forsake your sins and you go to Him, if you believe in Him, you trust in Him, you repent of your sins, you will be saved. But your parents can't do that for you. Number two, the seeds are in conflict. We recognize that in this age, we will suffer, right? In part, because the seed of the serpent will always attack and rail against the seed of the woman. The children of the devil will always persecute the children of God. Just as Cain murdered his brother. But God was on Abel's side. And God is on our side too, brothers and sisters. What can man do to us? We look to the triumph of Jesus to live in this fallen world. 
But unbelievers in Ash County probably aren't trying to kill us. They probably aren't even trying to have us imprisoned. They might not even dislike us, for that matter. But no, sometimes the persecution that we face is something a little more subtle. It sounds like this. Why don't you listen to the music that everybody else listens to? Why don't you come over? I've got some weed that we can smoke. What do you mean you don't watch porn? It's this video on my phone. What do you mean you don't sleep with your girlfriend? Are you holier than thou or something? Just a little gossip? Come on. Everybody's doing it. It's fine. There's a pull out there in the world, beloved. There is a pull. There's a desire that we have to fight against to fit in and be accepted by the seed of the serpent. Oh, church, I pray that when such trials and temptations assail you, that you will flee from them and run to Jesus. Satan is relentless. Satan wants to devour you. He hates the church. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. And Satan will be the one fleeing from you. But not because of you, but because of the one you belong to. The one who strengthens you for the fight. Satan does hate Jesus, but he's also terrified of Jesus. And you are safe and secure in Jesus' arms. So lean into him, be strengthened, and be encouraged, beloved. Because he is on your side. Third and finally, have an eternal perspective. As we reflected on the creation of man, we were reminded that our race has a purpose and it has an appointed end. We were made to glorify and to enjoy God. As we were singing earlier, we were made to walk with him. Struggling saint, hurting saint, your life has meaning. Jesus has freed you to fulfill your created purpose, to know God, to be in communion with Him, to walk with Him. In this life, but, you know, dialed up to 11 in the world to come. This light momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So store up treasures in heaven. Live as a sacrifice to God offered up through Jesus Christ. He is the unshakable rock of Israel. Build your life on Him because He is the one you were created for. He is the only one where you are going to find fulfillment. But also remember, He isn't going anywhere. He hasn't forgotten about you. You might feel like He has this morning. David often felt like he had forgotten about him, but he hasn't. He is working. And our God is the same from age to age. And He is your only refuge. And He is your delight. 
So focus everything upon Him and around Him as you continue your pilgrimage through this world. In conclusion, beloved, I ask you to consider the sons of God. Two in this case, Adam and Jesus Christ. Both have offspring. Adam had Cain, Abel, Seth, and all the rest. Adam, the covenant head of the human race, the father of us all in that sense. In his rebellion against God, his covenant breaking, it resulted in the ruin of humanity, a corrupted image of God. God's first son in the Garden of Eden failed spectacularly. And because of that, man is subject to the curses of sin and misery. Behold Adam, the first son of God, and all of Adam's sons. But then we have the Lord Jesus, the last Adam, the eternal, the only begotten Son of God, incarnate, prevailing in every way that Adam failed. He has a people too. He has sons. Isaiah 53.10 When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Hebrews 2, Christ says, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Behold Jesus, the Son of God and all of His sons. He takes the children of Adam, men and women, boys and girls who are children of wrath, and gives them the right to become children of God. And He watches over them. He gives them everything they need. He removes their filthy rags and wraps them in His glistening, spotless, righteous life. And reflecting on those two sons, Paul says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life the one man, Jesus Christ. And so I end as I started. He's a chip off the old block. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, like father, like son. Well, God commanded Adam to be like him, imprinting his very image on him. But he corrupted that image and passed that down through the generations. But Jesus the virgin-born last Adam, as God incarnate is in the perfect and most ultimate sense, the image of the invisible God. He is that image in a way no other image bearer ever can be. And in his role as the last Adam, he attained what the first Adam forfeited and he atoned for our sins on the cross He has clothed us with His righteousness and He has made us co-heirs with Himself. What an inheritance. 
and by His Spirit, He's transforming you. Through His Word, He's transforming you. He's transforming me. He is sanctifying us such that more and more and better and better we represent our God and Father. He's making us more accurate, if you will, images of God. And in the eternal state, that image, by God's grace, will have no spot or wrinkle. In our family of faith, beloved, a wonderful inheritance is laid up for us. Glorious, resurrected bodies, unable to die, suffer, or sin. By His resurrection, Jesus is the first fruits, and our bodies shall be made to be like His, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Such is the hope of all the sons of Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray. Holy Father, such things can move us to tears when we consider the love that you have for us. That you have seated us with the heavenly, in the heavenly places with Christ. Oh Lord, what an inheritance. Things that your word tells us that our minds can't even begin to imagine. Help us to live our lives, O oh God, with an eye to those eternal things. Father, thank you for uniting us to Christ. Please help us to continually grow in our love for him, to grow in our communion, our relationship, our affections for him. Lord, would you help us day by day to be more conformed to his image, that we would live like him in the world, that we would represent you rightly that you would help us to be holy as you were holy. And Father, that you would help us to remember that when we fall, that we may arise and run, flee to Christ, our great shepherd. We look to him with his rod and staff as he watches over us this morning. We commit ourselves to him. And we lift this up to you in his name. Amen.